Nugs, how did you become involved in the Iraq conflict? Well, just being part of the Marine Corps at the time, you're going to be involved during, during you know, when especially OIF. But, you know, I first went to Iraq. I went a couple of times before OIF, Operation uh, Enduring Freedom, kicked off uh, in 2003. I went uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, we would go over, I went on the uh, Nimitz uh, in the, as well as the Stennis, and we would uh, basically set up shop in the Persian Gulf. And we would do Operation Southern Watch is what it was called at the time, where we would patrol the no-fly zone in the south. And, and uh, we'd spend three or four months doing that at a time. And there were really no hostilities back then, but we would still drop ordnance from time to time. Anytime Iraq would do something like fly south of the no-fly zone, They'd fly south and then just turn around and run back north, things like that. We'd retaliate by dropping uh, a bomb on usually communication nodes and stuff, not not uh, any people involved. There were always unmanned uh, just assets that Iraq had down in the south, and we would just get rid of that just to, to show them what's up. Every now and then they'd move uh, AAA pieces down south as well. They would never fire at us, but they would be there. And uh, we would, uh, from time to time, uh, get rid of some of that stuff. Um, but that's, uh, that was leading up to it. And then once the war in Iraq was, was kicking off, you know, <clears throat> because of our National Command Authority, we knew, and I think everybody in the world knew, that this was coming months prior. We left on deployment uh, on the USS Constellation with VMFA-323. I believe it was November of 2002. And when we left, um, we pretty much knew what we were going to do. You know, we, we, you know, we didn't have a hard line in the sand that for sure we were going to go to war with Iraq, but we knew it was coming. We could read the tea leaves and the training we were doing leading up to it. We knew what was going to happen. But uh, we went over there and we were in place in the Persian Gulf by early December of 2002. And, and the war didn't really kick off until March. So we were there for quite a while before it started. Uh, just waiting for it to happen. And then once uh, I think uh, our president at the time, uh, George Bush, uh, made an announcement on, on worldwide TV that he had given Saddam Hussein and his sons like two days to leave the country. Uh, we, we knew a week or two before that that it was going to happen. And, and we were just waiting for the trigger moment to, to kick things off. So we were already planned up. We were ready to go. We had pretty much our target sets already set up and uh, the uh, whole U.S. apparatus at that time, which is a whole different story, was starting to move into the uh, area of operation as well, which you know it's going to happen once that's going. So what was life like on the boat uh, up until the build-up? Was there like a, a bit of tension there or was it just as normal? Uh, how did you feel about that personally as well? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really equate it to tension as much as it was, honestly, it was excitement because I think at the time, you know, remember 9-11 was just still fresh in everybody's mind and we were still upset about that. And, and whether you want to agree or not, you know, the U S had linked to Iraq to a lot of the, uh, the unruly activities that were happening in the world at the time. And, and we just felt like it was our duty and we had spent so much time of our lives training, uh, to be operational um, during workups before the deployment, all the way to deployment, that we were, you know, we were, we were excited to, to do what our country had bid for us to do. 
you know, so tension wasn't really that much, maybe a little anxiety, um, mainly because you did not want to mess it up. Right. You felt anxiety like, hey, they've they've paid a lot of money to train me to put me in this spot and I do not want to make a mistake and let my country down. So that was really the only anxiety we felt. But life on the boat was pretty normal. We flew every day, normal training missions. We were still doing that Operation Southern Watch mentality that I had mentioned earlier. Um, we were still patrolling in the fly zone. We're still going into the country day in, day, out, day, in, day in and day out, uh, still performing that mission, leading right up to the time that we started pulling the trigger uh, when the war kicked off. Um, I will say, backing up a little bit, that about two weeks prior to the war starting, all the assets of America started to move in. When I first got there in late November, early December, just like all the other times I'd been over to Iraq and the Persian Gulf off the carrier, you know, you almost feel like you're a one man band. You're the only show in town. You know, you had a few assets out of Kuwait, uh, <clears throat> some stuff with the Air Force out of Saudi Arabia. But the carrier was was you feel like you're the only person in town, the carrier battle group. About two weeks prior, everything changed. I mean, planes just started appearing out of nowhere uh, coming from America. The Air Force moving all their assets, moved a big, big uh, number of uh, assets into Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, the air control system over Iraq and uh, Kuwait and the Persian Gulf. Um, was pretty much taken over by uh, the Air Force, took a lot of it over. The uh, Navy pretty much ran it over the sea. But once you went inland, the uh, Air Force pretty much ran the show. So everything changed. And so you knew, wow, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that's showing up over here. So it was kind of an indication to us that things were going down pretty quick. And at this time, were the Navy and, you know, the squadrons themselves communicating with the other services? Or was it, you had one job, we'll get on with it? Or was there, no, we can do it better than you, maybe we can do it better than you, etc.? Or how did that work? No, we, we all fell, fell under uh, the same command authority at the time. So, no, there was no competition of uh, right. what we were going to do. You know, it was weird because, you know, I'm a Marine squadron and I'm on a Navy ship. Yeah. Where I came from Miramar, a lot of the assets that were from Miramar, the land-based squadrons, a lot of the D, the two-seat squadrons, a few of the single-seat squadrons that weren't boat squadrons, started showing up in theater at that point, too. And they were down in Kuwait. So a lot of our friends and mates were there as well, but they were obviously living in tents in Kuwait. We were living in, off the uh, boat. And we can talk later about the differences of that as well. But uh, so, no, there was no... There was no competition for anything. We all had our set goals. We all were working together. And then once the war kicked off, um, it was uh, we, were, we all worked in real close proximity to each other and, and as far as mission planning and everything went. Um, my first strike I led, I was a mission commander on the USS Constellation in CAC-2. And the first strike that I led, um, I believe, was around 14 aircraft and... Two of them were from uh, the Marines on land, and those were EA-6B Prowlers doing electronic attack. Two were actually uh, B-2 bombers that came all the way from the United States for that strike because they weren't keeping those over in theater, right? And then the rest were from our uh, aircraft carrier, uh, other F-18s and a couple F-14s. 
And we started planning this a couple of days before the war started. So I was communicating uh, with the guys from uh, Kansas flying the B-2 bombers uh, via uh, the Cipernet, the classified internet email system. And we, would, we wouldn't really talk face-to-face on the phone, but we would talk through email, just coordinating times and stuff like that on, you know, like what our mission set was, what time we were going to be over target, what time I wanted them over target. And we did a massive coordination. And then about 24 hours prior to the strike, I actually talked to their uh, flight lead, their mission commander uh, via phone, uh, classified telephone system called a stew phone or something like that. I can't remember, but we could actually talk from the ship. And he and I just had a very brief 15 minute conversation where we ran down the, uh, the uh, list of targets and made sure that we were coordinated on everything, times, frequencies, things like that. Because, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is a little bit early to do this, but I didn't realize that they were flying like almost a 20 hour mission nonstop. <laughs> so they were, he was about to go into his sleep period before he took off, you know. They flew all the way from the States. I'm sure they tanked multiple times. Dropped their dropped their ordnance on time on target in Iraq and then turned south and I think they went down to Diego Garcia. I thought that was pretty incredible. You know, that was a long flight. Yeah. So let's talk about your first mission there, because that must have been. Were you nervous or were you excited? What were your feelings uh, going into that first strike? You know, actually, it's kind of funny story. I've told this before, <clears throat> not to your viewers, but that that first strike I led. You know, I was real excited about it. We've been working on it for days. And one of my buddies was my assistant uh, mission commander on it. And we, we, you know, and I knew everybody from the ship I was flying with and briefing with. And I had a lot of support, you know, on the ship. They have an intel center. And a lot of the intel officers are helping you with, you know, target sets. And everything's given to you. It's not like you're going to take off and go find something, which we started doing later. And I'll get to that when we're working kill boxes. But you know, everything was that first night. Remember, it was that shock and awe campaign. Do you remember when mm-hmm. that kind of went on? That was the big yeah. kind of buzzword you used or you heard on TV. Um, it was that night. And so, you know, a lot of our target sets were already set up. And the thing, what I mentioned earlier is what I was most nervous about is messing up, right? I remember thinking, hey, please, God, don't let me mess this one up. You know, let me... Don't let me do something dumb or drop on the wrong target or not be able to program my weapon system appropriately tonight. Don't let my jet break down on me on the flight deck. There are a lot of things going through your head you're worried about. And so I get in the airplane and I think we were launching at around 2 a.m. local time. Uh, so we slept all day, which I didn't get a wink of sleep. I was going on probably 24 hours of no sleep. So I get in the airplane. And everybody's turning on the flight deck. There was already a couple of waves that had gone into Iraq and come back. And, um, and we have a big uh, packet of comm frequencies. You know, you have so many contingencies. Like, what happens if I'm shot down? Who's going to come pick us up? You know, what assets are going to come and rescue us? You know, there's just a million things to worry about. And I had a comm pack that was probably literally this thick, frequencies and stuff. And we would always work uh, what we called have quick, which is a frequency hopping system. So nobody can listen to our communications, mm-hmm. UHF band frequency hopping. 
And sometimes that didn't work right. So I was worried about, well, I don't want to get out here and then I can't talk to anybody. What am I going to do? You know, I'm going to freak out. You know, everything was just you're worried, right? So I get on the deck and you, and I start my airplane up. Everything loads up right. Everything's perfect, just like it should be. I go through a communications check with all the other airplanes on the deck with half quick. Everybody checks in perfectly. It seemed like everything was working better than ever. It was like there was some special switch America flicked once a war started that made everything just that much better you know what i'm saying like it went to 11 like spinal tap that movie Mm -hmm. and um and uh so i'm like wow this is really working good so i'm feeling good so i taxi up to the catapult right and i'm one of the first guys to go off and we were going to take off join up as separate four ships pre-mission tank going to saudi arabia find some tankers tank then go and hold until the timing was all perfect because we got to be in sync with the the airplanes flying all the way from Kansas and fly over Baghdad and drop some bombs and stuff. So everything's working good. So I'm taxiing up to the catapult and it's Cat 4, which is the shortest catapult. So it means basically that the acceleration is just a little bit more, right? Because you want it a certain end speed and the catapult, based on your weight, is going to make that end speed happen. Well, that end speed on a longer catapult is a little more smoother than the short catapult, right? So I, I, I'm just all in, in, like, id mode. You know, my, my brain is working on stem power at this point. You know, it's just like, I'm just, like, overwhelmed with everything that's going on and everything's working. And I'm just like, whoa. So I taxi up to the catapult. It's at night. I look over at the... The, the CAD officer, what they'll do is they'll hold a board up with your weight, whatever weight your aircraft is. I didn't even think about it because it's always right, right? The weight they always give you is pretty much plus or minus 1,000 pounds correct, and you can change it. Well, I taxi up, and because of the loadout I had on the airplane, the gas I was carrying, the weapon systems, I was at max weight for an F-18. And it's rare that you take off it max weight now i look over at the board and i see that number and it dawns on me i'm like wow that's a heavy i'm in a heavy airplane you know and i i confirm it and i'm like yeah that's the right weight so i roger the weight board taxi up to the catapult and i'm kind of sitting there thinking okay what do i got to do next I'm, I'm already thinking like way ahead of the airplane when i get airborne who am i talk to where we're gonna go and the catapult goes off right and it was such a violent catapult like I've never felt before. The acceleration like was so bad or so good. Or actually, my knees came off the, the rudder pedals and I was going down. It's a black and night. There wasn't a moon. And I go off the end and I'm like, whoa. And I'm still standing on the flight deck and I'm already airborne at this point. I'm like, wow, that was really fast. And it freaked me out. I'm like, because it was such a, a violent acceleration my my initial like little brainstem was like something ain't right you know something's going wrong here this feels too too aggressive but it wasn't it was normal i just wasn't ready for it i was too worried about everything else because i was at max weight so i'm gonna have a really high end speed i was on the shortest catapult so the most violent cat stroke off of it so i get airborne and then i'm like whoa and you actually decelerate a little bit once you come off the front of the ship and I'm climbing away and I'm like, whoa, wow, that was something. So then I'm like, wow, I should be accelerating quicker than this. And I, then I remember, oh, shit, my gear's still down. So I got to throw my <laughs> gear up, you know. 
I'm just way behind the airplane because all I'm doing yeah. is worried about everything else. I'm like, God, get, get your stuff together here. So anyway, I cleaned it up and climbed up and everything went off with the hitch on that first mission. Everybody was on time, on target. Everything just seemed to work right. Every time I checked somebody in on the radio, they were there. Uh, the B2 guys coming out of Kansas, like right at this certain, we had a check-in time airborne. As soon as I keyed the mic and, and asked for them, they checked right in. I mean, it was just amazing how perfect everything went. And I would say most of the uh, time in Iraq, other than an OSW, uh, during that uh, invasion in 2003, it was like that. Just everything seemed to work just perfectly with the communications, the navigation, the timing of everything. There was very little uh, uh, wrenches thrown in the plane at that point. That was very impressive to me. Yeah, so let, before we move on to some more missions and um, what weapons you would actually be dropping. So when you were coordinating, there was no, would you be contacting the B2s or was it all just planned you knew exactly where you were going or would you be on the radio to them, secure radio? No, it was all pre-planned. They had a uh, target set. We had a target set. It was a coordinated effort in the event that mm. we're out of their way, they're out of our way. Um, but we were kind of piggybacking on the same electronic attack package too. Mm -hmm. I mentioned we had some EA-6s airborne with us and they were providing electronic attack during our uh, route of flight on our axis. And that was a lot of the coordination to make sure that we were both getting the max benefit out of that EA. Because at the time, the first couple of days of the war, we weren't, you know, we, we had intel, we knew what Iraq had. And they did have some surface air capabilities but we didn't know if they were going to use them or not because as soon as they turned on their radar systems, it was going to identify them and they yeah. were going to, you know, have harm missiles raining down upon them. So they were smart not to use a lot of that, but, it, but we, we just didn't know at the time. So a lot of that coordination was for that, you know, not in the same piece of sky at the same time. Yeah, and I think our listeners would love to hear a bit more detail about some of the missions you flew over this time. And yeah, what sort of like uh, munitions would you be carrying and dropping? I'd say uh, during that time, in the first few days of the war, we were dropping all precision-guided munitions, and JDAMs, you know, were, were big then. That's kind of the standard weapon now, and they've actually evolved those. But back in the day, that was pretty new, and we carried a lot of JDAM, um, mainly, believe it or not, because the 500-pound JDAM wasn't really coming online then. It was There were 2,000-pounders, so we are dropping 2,000-pound bombs quite often going for the bigger targets, which, you know, that's a pretty big boom. Uh, but it's also a lot of weight on the airplane. Um, then, uh, you know, as far as air to air stuff, we would take a load out of one aim one twenty, uh, uh, two aim nines, one on each wingtip, um, JDAM. And then we carry a FLIR pod as well. And, um, sometimes people would carry electronic attack pods, but we didn't really need that. Um, and then, after the first few days of the war, we started uh, moving into uh, other types of weapon systems, um, laser-guided bombs, smaller ones, LGBs, and we would always carry two AIM-9s. And then at, at, towards the end, we started slicking off uh, and not using the AIM-120 because we, at that point, there was no air-to-air -air threat uh, from Iraq. We were not concerned about any aircraft coming up. So. I mean, what was the threat in the air-to-air -air environment? Was Did they have MiG-29s, uh, F-1 Mirages? I can't remember. Um, did you feel you like know, they might have been the threat? 
No, we, I never felt threatened by them. You know, they did have MiG-25s initially, you know, because that's what they would come across the no-fly zone and turn around and run away with. And I believe they had some F-1s back then as, as well. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, and uh, But most of their aircraft, they had left the country long ago, and they just didn't have a lot left. I think they still had some MiG-23s as well, some old MiG-23s still floating around there as well. So they didn't have a lot. of. We didn't feel threatened a lot. And every time we were over there, we were always, you know, multi-role being an F-18. So we, we, we could self-protect uh, with our air-to-air radar and AIM-120, AIM-9s. But we also had fighter caps. We're always airborne as well. They're always F-15 caps over Iraq. And they would keep a good eye out if they saw any kind of, uh, you know, aircraft getting airborne. You would get an alert. You'd probably just clear out of the way and let them take care of that at that time. And so there, were F3s over, there were F3s over there as well during the time. You know, that's what they <laughs> Doing were. nothing, probably. Yeah. yeah, in fact, the only time, yeah, I told you that, your viewers, the only time I really saw one was when I almost ran over. The tank, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll miss that part. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so how, did you, <laughs> so how did you coordinate with, yeah, the fighter caps? Would you be in contact with the F-15 guys who were doing caps or... Um, how would that work? How did everyone, like, it, it baffles me, like, in a battle space, like, looking down, how everyone knows where they're supposed to be. You know, it's it's an incredibly uh, complex system. Um, you're right. It's it, it's the battle space. There's usually a battle space manager, mul- multiple ones up there, obviously. Um, and they would be in AWACS usually. You know, AWACS would be airborne, and they would be controlling everything. And so generally, did I talk to the uh, guys on fighter cap? No. They were up different frequencies because they would have their own internal comm. And then they would, if they got comm from AWACS to commit on a target, and it, it involved any kind of space we were in, then, then we would get warned about that and told to uh, – egress a certain direction or something like that you know and or if it was more advantageous to direct us onto that target then they would do the same so there was a battle space manager and they were monitoring multiple frequencies and they would come up you know and uh talk to you if they needed to but in general you would check in like coming off the boat we would get away from the battle group they have their own red crown we would talk through them Mm -hmm. and then they would hand us off to i believe it was at the time it's called absolute which was the Air Force controllers, and they were uh, either airborne or out of Kuwait, and uh, depends on what time of day and what was going on. And then they would hand you off to a terminal frequency that was basically your frequency to use within your strike group, and then they would contact you on that frequency if they needed to advise you of anything or tell you anything, or if you need to contact them because something was happening, you could talk to them directly on that frequency. But there were so many frequencies, there was no problem getting in touch with anybody if you needed mm-hmm. to. And you, uh, you previously mentioned that there was also like uh, land-based operations as well. Did you ever uh, operate from uh, any land bases or was it all on the board of the ship for you? No, no operation. I, I was purely coming off the carrier back and forth to the ship is all I was doing. You know, we, uh, we like the uh, Marines uh, that were based over in Kuwait that came land base. They were attached to third Marine air wing who was over there at the time and they fell under their leadership. Right. And believe it or not, so we were a Marine squadron, but we fell within the Navy, you know, and, uh, so we, we were we were basically attached and owned by naval assets at the time. So we were even though we were the same service, same base, 
we had different command structures right there and then just for the wartime. You know, we were an asset to the Navy. So how often would you be flying and did it take a toll on you mentally and physically? We flew every day. Uh, nah, it, you know, the war seemed to end, go by so fast. But no, I don't think I, I don't think you had time to be tired. You know, generally the the normal, you know, you'd uh, plan for a mission. And once again, I was a mission commander. So I'd say 90 percent of the time I was the flight lead when when we when I do a mission and I would spend I'd go on a mission, come back, sleep, probably land at five, six in the morning sleep all day, wake up, start planning another mission, go execute that, kind of wash, rinse, and repeat. And we would do that pretty much the whole time. And I think probably every four days or so, you'd probably have a day off to rest, you know, if you needed mm -hmm. it. You know, certainly, you know, if you were not up for it, they're not going to put you in it. But we were all excited. You know, I was living on uh, uh, Copenhagen and coffee at that point. You know, that's just the way it was, so... Yeah, so yeah. you mentioned, yeah, you, you came back from a mission five, six in the morning, you went to sleep. Was your mind not racing? Uh, could you just, were you, oh, you're so tired, knackered, you just went like, right, that's me. Or was your mind just going? Because mine would be thinking about everything yeah. that's just happened. Yeah, your mind was going. And it was a lot of conversation, you know, like my, uh, my roommate on the ship, John Spar Dukes, by far the best fighter pilot I've ever flown with. Unfortunately, he lost his life on his next deployment. And I miss that guy. But, um, he was kind of like snort. He was one of those snort S type guys. And he was very tactical. And we spent a lot of time laughing and talking about stuff in our stateroom, you know, after missions and sitting around and, you know, at all hours of the night, you know, not sleeping, just talking about stuff. And, you know, so we, like I said, we weren't, we were living on very little sleep. And a lot of that was self-induced because you're excited about it. You know, you're excited about the missions and what you're doing. Um, after the first few days, um, doing those, uh, I hate to use that cliched word, the shock and awe stuff, or just basically strategically bombing Iraq. Mm -hmm. We moved into a different phase at that point. Then you had the uh, 1st Marine Division or 1MEF, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, and I believe the 3rd uh, Inf Infantry Division of the Army. And uh, I know the British were involved as well, pushing north at that point. And so things changed to supporting them, right? The first day or two was getting rid of strategic stuff, uh, artillery, things like that, uh, and, then, uh, and then supporting them as they moved forward at that point. And so then we switched. We actually got to fly a few daytime sorties after that, and that was more exciting, you know, for us to do than flying through the middle of the night, just dropping, you know, precision bombs, um, going in the daytime stuff where you actually get to see a lot of the targets. And very interesting, we had never really practiced too much of this, but they had divided Iraq into 30 by 30 uh, kilometer zones. And just to use the better word, they called them kill boxes, right? And they were all numbered. And you would do, go out as a two ship, so two F-18s, that's it at a time and your loadout, you carry a heavy loadout. We weren't carrying AIM-120s in because once again, we're not worried about an air-to-air -air threat. Uh, AIM-9s um, and then loaded with bombs, both uh, L sometimes JDAM, but uh, most of the time LGBs. And we were in sometimes just plain dumb bombs, right? Um, hmm. and also, we always carried uh, a full load of 20 mic mic, 20 you know, millimeter rounds in the nose of the, of the Hornet as well. And we would go out and you'd be assigned a kill box. 
you check in with the command authority. They would send you to your kill box, and you already knew which one it was because you're pre-assigned it, so you could do some target recce, you know, with some intel and stuff before you went there. And your whole purpose was you could self-designate targets. Anything that was military, uh, Iraqi military, obviously, we were way forward of American lines, so there was no friendlies in that area. Anything that was designated as a, uh, a military asset to Iraq, you were cleared to engage it. And a lot of times we were looking for artillery pieces, uh, APCs, armored vehicles, uh, troop congregations, things like that. And we would target this stuff. And that was kind of, uh, that was a little more nerve wracking and stressful because, you know, the, you had a lot of responsibility at that point to make sure make damn sure that it was only military targets you were going after. Right. And it was real evident. It was never like that was never uh, urban stuff. We were never doing uh, those kind of that kind of mission over a city or or neighborhoods. It was all basically yeah. open death. And you had pre predetermined intel where you kind of knew what was there with satellite passages and stuff like that. But we go we would go do that. And every now and then you would get to shoot the gun and the Hornet. And that was pretty fun to do because, you know, you don't get to do that a lot. Um, and you get to see some interesting stuff like the Iraq military was uh, they were hiding a lot of stuff along hospitals and things like that. They would they would park their armored vehicles like as close to a, a medical facility as they could. And, you know, because they know there's nothing you can do about it. We're not going to bomb a hospital. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, you know, a little, it was interesting to see the way they fought that and dealt with that kind of stuff. You know, uh, a good thing, well, not a good thing, but probably one of the more exciting things that happened to me during the war happened during the daytime doing one of those. We were, <laughs> it kind of turned into a, uh, a, a crap show, to be honest with you. We're out there. Uh, it's basically at sunrise, me and my wingman, who was a really solid guy, one of the junior guys in the squadron, um, who had a great career afterwards, one of my favorite pilots to fly with. We were out there, he's my wingman, we were, we were looking for uh, uh, targets in a kill box. And we were looking for the, uh, the Iraqi Republican Guard. We were basically right over the top of them. And we were looking for their artillery pieces because the Marines and the Army were moving north and, you know, we wanted to make sure those were gone before they got there. So we're, we're overhead. The sun's just coming up. It's like a beautiful, it's not a cloud in the sky. And his uh, FLIR pod was broke. It had went down in the flight. So I had mine and I was heads down staring at my FLIR trying to identify some stuff. And I told him, I'm like, hey, just keep sight of me. I'm going to be heads down. Um, looking at my FLIR, you know, we're just talking on our ox freak to each other, you know, coordinating stuff. And so I'm heads down flying the airplane and all of a sudden a shadow comes over the top of my airplane. And, you know, it's funny how your, your, your cat sense or sixth sense notices things that, you know, you're, you're just flying along in a, in a bright sunny day, you know, it's really bright out now. It's morning, the sun's up. And I'm looking at my FLIR pod, all of a sudden a shadow like comes completely over my airplane. And, and I just kind of became aware of that. And I looked up and when I looked up, his airplane was literally like five feet above mine. You know, I mean, I don't know how we didn't have a midair. He was just like right there. And I was like, oh man, I like, Whoa. I pushed, I pushed full forward on my stick and unloaded. And I was like, holy cow. And, and only thing I could say is say, hey, do you see me? And uh, he came back and goes, yeah, I see you. And I go, no, you don't. 
so, so basically what had happened is he was, he was, you know, doing what anybody's going to do. He's anxious. He's looking down there too, seeing what he can see. Cause we're, we're probably at 20,000 feet over the Republican guard. And, uh, and he just kind of lost essay a little bit and drifted. It wasn't like a, a high pass rate. He just like drifted over and was kind of just hovering above my airplane, kind of like this. And when, <laughs> when he shadowed me out, I looked up and saw him. And I was later, we had a good laugh about it. Like, wow, man, that would have been bad if we ran into each other because we would have both had to punch out right on top of the Republican Guard. I don't know how that would have went for us. But anyway, so after that, we, we did find some targets. We got rid of all of our bombs, which is good. Then we went, we were told to go to a tanker because we needed gas to get back to the ship. We were going to be the last two planes to land that morning because they shut the flight deck down for the day because they got to reposition, maintenance, do right. everything. We were, we we're basically the late night, early morning carrier. So we go to the tanker and the tanker can't accept um, uh, probes. You know, it was only set up for Air Force style. They didn't have the capability yeah. to do it. So we had no gas. So we ended up diverting into Kuwait, where the Third Marine uh, Air Wing was, and and it was a beautiful day. But we looked down, and there's a sandstorm blowing through. I mean, bad. But from the top down, you could see the field, but horizontal, the visibility was really really restricted. And I'm like, wow, man. And by then, by now, we're skosh on gas. We're both we're both pretty much emergency fuel. So I, I talked to the controllers at Kuwait and uh, I said, hey, listen, you know, hey, we're, we're a flight of two, we're, we're off to Connie, but whatever. We're, we're declaring emergency fuel, you know, we need to land. And he's like, he's like, uh, say, say minutes left in gas. And so, you know, I did a little quick mental math for Marines and came up with, we got about 30 minutes left in gas. And he goes, okay, well, join the line. There's six people in front of you that are lower than you. And I'm wow. like, oh, no. So six F-16s were low on gas in the same sense. So we got in a big conga line of planes getting vectored around to land in a sandstorm with hardly any gas. And I'm thinking, this is going to be it for me. I'm going to punching out of this airplane because I ran out of gas, you know, not wow. because of anything else. So it, it worked out. We land and. I let him land first. He was a little lower than me and we land and, you know, we spent the day in uh, Kuwait hanging out with the uh, Marines. So it was kind of good because we couldn't go back to the ship. The deck was closed. We just went out the next night. We just sat around there all day. So. Yeah. So <laughs> just on a side note, you know, so yeah, when you land, do you all just, yeah, just hang out like it's normal? Uh, like, oh, do you talk about, you know, what you've just done? Or is it like, come, let's go for uh, lunch or dinner or whatever? How does that work? You know, a little bit of both. A lot of times people are resting and they're in their battle rhythm, right? You know, mm. and so we land and we don't have anything. All the people on the ground all have, uh, they carry around what they call mop gear, basically uh, hazmat suits or chemical warfare suits and gas yeah. masks with them while they're walking around because there's a real threat of a gas attack, right, by, by Iraq. They're into doing weird stuff like that. So we didn't have anything. Me and... Uh, me and my wingman just had the uh, flight suits on her back. And so we go walking around and uh, and we run into people we know and we're chit-chatting. And then we go over to the chow hall to have lunch. And a funny story, me and my wingman are eating lunch, sitting in the uh, chow hall and it's packed, right? And everybody, you know, we, we definitely were the people that were different. You know, we didn't have patches. We didn't fly with patches or anything on our flight suits. You know, oh, right. 
showed up there. And um, and so we're, we don't really know where to go. And people are helping us out. A buddy of mine from Third Ma, another Hornet pilot that was laying base. I rented him. He took us over there. So we go sit down to eat. And he, me, me and my wingman are sitting there eating. And all of a sudden, they have a uh, a uh, alarm or siren goes off, which is a potential for a gas attack. They think there might be a Scud missile coming towards the base. So everybody in the entire chow hall, probably 200 people, everything goes silent. Everybody pulls out their gas mask no and way. throws them on. <laughs> and everybody's sitting there in dead silence in this room with gas mask on. And me and my wingman are just sitting there looking at each other just like I am right now. Just we have nothing. And we're just looking. <laughs> and I know, you know, I think we all know there was – I had been flying, this was like day number five of the war, maybe six even. And I had been up north and back, and I knew there was no scud coming in there. I knew that some overzealous person probably flipped the alarm because he saw a blip on a radar, you know. And so I remember just sitting there, and the guy across from me, who I don't even know, is just, he goes, sucks to be you, you know, said that to me. <laughs> and I just laughed. I go, no, it sucks to be you because you're wearing that for nothing, man. <laughs> And so we just sat there for about 10 minutes until they sounded the all clear. And then we all Back started. Back to your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was kind of a funny little situation. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> maybe, the, uh, I don't know how to address this, but was uh, was there any casualties on your ship uh, and from your squadron? Did anyone get shot down? Was there anything like was like more motive to you that like you knew the person or anything like that? No, there was... We did not lose anybody uh, from uh, our air wing. In fact, I think the only naval asset that was lost, uh, other than some, sadly, some probably Navy SEALs and stuff like that, um, off the Kitty Hawk, which was one of the last non-nuclear carriers, was over there. And it was uh, it was sailing pretty close to us, sharing some space in the Persian Gulf. And it's funny you say that, because I was just thinking of that story. I was flying with our CAG or air group commander. I was lead him on a, on a kill box sortie uh, in the middle of the night. And we were working, uh, it was up by Al Basra, which was, I believe, Saddam Hussein's hometown. And we were way up north and there was some art, uh, mo I'm sorry, not artillery, but um, tanks and stuff down there. And we were dropping bombs on them. And we were, we were working that kill box and then how it worked is once you finish a kill box working there, somebody else will usually come fill it. If there's targets there, they'll keep funneling airplanes in there to finish off the work. Mm -hmm. And a two ship of F-18s from the Kitty Hawk showed up to, uh, to uh, replace us. And I had did a, a quick on the, there's a common freak for each kill box and they checked in and I gave, their flight lead, a quick update and said, hey, listen, this is kind of the targets that we're working. Here's the direction they are. Here's here's the points and here's what we're seeing now, things like that. Gave him a quick intel face to face, kind of over the radio brief. He's like, got it. So me and my wingman, who was our air group commander, leave the kill box and we're going to go back to the ship at this point. It wasn't five minutes after we left the kill box that we hear the calls on guard, you know, that's the 121.5 or uh, 243.0, the frequency that basically is an emergency frequency that everybody right. can monitor, right? Comes up and it's talking about 
aircraft down in this vicinity. And it was, that was the kill box we just left. And I'm like, what the heck is that all about? And um, there's nothing we can do at this point because we're low on gas and there's on-scene commanders coming in. I mean, it was the whole apparatus came in. And turns out, we didn't find out until we got back to the ship that one of the F-18s that checked in to replace us was shot down immediately when they got into that kill box by an American Patriot missile. So it was blue on blue. So they're... They're squawked, they're mode four, they're, uh, that the uh, Patriot system interrogates for whatever reason wasn't working on one of the F-18s. It was a junior wingman. And so I think it was an auto mode. I don't know what happened, but they launched a Patriot missile at him, which is a death dart. You're going to die when that thing's coming at you. Ended up uh, taking out one of those F-18s literally minutes after we left. Wow. The kill box, which kind of may raise a hair on my back. I'm like, I'm glad my mode four worked and this poor guy, yeah. you know, and a lot of things changed after that because you may remember, but uh, GR4 um, from the RAF was shot down by a Patriot missile over there mm-hmm. as well when we were there. So the Patriot batteries were being a little bit too antsy. They weren't worried about uh, enemy airplanes. They're worried about Scud missiles, yeah. uh, gas attacks and stuff like that. And so they were very trigger happy had everything set up that way and, and not, you know, the big picture wasn't resonating as well. And I think they fixed all that, but unfortunately, you know, two good British crews and an American had to die for it. So that was all I Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some great stories there, Nugs. But overall, how did you feel about your time in Iraq? I mean, were you proud of it? Or do you still, like, reminisce to this day about it? Obviously, we're talking about it now, but do you speak about it to friends and family? You know, I haven't thought about it really in years. It's been so long ago. Every now and then I'll look at pictures, like there's one right in my, in my face right here of, of me and a hornet over Baghdad. I, uh, I think about it, and I'm very proud of my service. You know, I'm very proud. You know, I, I, I lost some friends along the way, and so it, was it worth it? You know, it's hard to say, but I, uh, I am proud. I think it went well. I was very I, – I, obviously, I'm a fan of America, right? Um, I was very impressed at how well the war machine came together in the end for the United States and how well oiled the machine really is and what it can do. You know, that was even eye opening to me with my experience, my background and my training when all this came together, how well that puzzle really in the end just fits perfectly together. So, yeah, while we wrap up here, Nugs, how long did you spend over there? And I'm I'm hoping you got a nice break when you came back. (laughs) Um, well, on this, this journey, I was over there for about, uh, five months, six months. And then when I came back, yeah, I had a, well, when I came back, I, I, uh, I, within months I was over in the UK, you know, flying with you guys. So it was really, really tight. So that was my break is getting to go over and have a good time flying the tornado F3. Absolutely. Well, Nugs, uh, thank you very much for sharing a bit about your story uh, over Iraq. It's, uh, as always, a pleasure to speak to you, and I'm sure we'll uh, have you back on soon. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Cheers.